0: You know, we sang a song uh, this morning. If uh, you were there at the, the children's musical uh, last night, if you were there um, beforehand, called "Come That Long Expected Jesus," we just sang it again tonight, and it's one of my favorite Christmas hymns, if you will. In uh, that that first line, "Come Thou Long Expected Jesus." If you think back to first century Israel, right before the time of the birth of Christ, you had Israel on pins and needles waiting for the coming of the Messiah. You had had 400 years of silence from God that from the time of the the last prophet had spoken to the people of Israel to the time that Jesus came on the scene, there was 400 years of just wondering, okay, God, what are you going to do? When are you going to speak? When are you going to, to send the Messiah, the deliverer, the one that we've been waiting for and looking for and longing for? And in that time and during that time, Israel had been exiled and Israel had been brought back and then Israel had been in the the promised land and in the the nation of Israel and in Jerusalem again, but yet under the oppression of foreign leaders, specifically at this time of Roman leadership. And so they had developed this idea that the Messiah that they needed was going to be a political Messiah, was going to be a military Messiah, was going to be a Messiah that was going to come in and and knock some heads together with the Romans and reestablish Israel as the true political power that the, the world once recognized it as under the reigns of David and Solomon. And so they were looking for that type of Messiah. So we can't necessarily blame them when we see that though they were singing in the, their minds, come that long expected Messiah, Christ, anointed one. When Jesus came as a baby, they totally missed him. They totally missed him. And then as Jesus grew up, and as Jesus was a a gentle leader, the scriptures say that he wasn't even going to to break a reed. And as Jesus was a a humble leader, as Jesus was not anything to to look at, and behold, as Isaiah 53 talks about, and then certainly as Jesus was arrested, was betrayed by one of his own followers, which would have been an incredible sign of weakness from a leader, when he's arrested, when he's brought before Pilate, when he's sentenced to death on a cross, when he's hung on a cross in between two criminals strip naked certainly everybody was looking at that and watching that and saying this man is certainly not the Messiah that we've been waiting for that we've been expecting and, and quite honestly they were right he wasn't the Messiah that they were waiting for and that they were looking for and that they were expecting but he was the one that they needed and he's the one that, that we needed we needed him to come the way that he came and we're gonna talk about why tonight but as we're sitting here and, and we'll come back to this in a little while You know We need to be singing that same song, come thou long expected Jesus, not looking back to his first appearance, but now as believers in Christ, we're in the same position in first century Israel. We're waiting for Christ. We're waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for him to return. And so we're really in the same boat, but what do we need to be doing while we wait for him to return? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. But as we get into this, I want you to think about what the greatest bit of news that you've ever received is. For me, from an earthly perspective at least, it was when uh, I was in college and after the, the first time in my book, second time in Amanda's book of us meeting, uh, you can ask her about the discrepancy there, She, uh, I, I called her up because I, I saw her at this this uh, function, again in college. Have I said that this is a great time of life to find somebody to date and end up falling in love with and marrying? Because it is. I saw her the night before, this back to school bonanza thing and, and she was a fox and I was sitting there going, you know what? Somebody else is going to call her up and ask her out if I don't, so I need to do that. So I called her up and asked her out, but I called her landline in her dorm room and left a message thinking, okay, she'll get back to me, whatever. Like two weeks went by, nothing, right? Nothing. And I've been rejected plenty of times in my life. So I was no stranger to rejection, but every other girl had at least had the common decency to just give me an awkward look or say no, right? So... What, every time I walked by Amanda on campus, she would like smile at me and wave at me. I'm going, what are you doing? This is insane. Just what? Just leave me alone. You didn't return my call. Until finally, and here's where it comes to the best news I'd ever received. She called me and she said, hey, I just got your voicemail. This is like two weeks later. I just got your voicemail. I had lent my phone to my roommate, who that roommate would plague us for the rest of our dating career, by the way. It should have been a sign right there. But she was like, I lent my phone to, to somebody else. And so I couldn't check my messages. I just got your voicemail. Of course, I'd like to go out with you. So at that point, I did what any logical guy would do who was interested in a girl. And I hung up the phone and I ran up and down my dorm room hallway just shouting at the top of my lungs, She said yes! And uh, yeah, it was a big deal in, in, in the life of, of PJ. Um, it was, it was a big deal. And then I realized that I had to get people to go on a group date with because I had promised her a group date. So then I started pounding on doors going, you're going to go on a group date with me whether you want to or not, because this is for the greater good of my future and the ministry that I'm going to do and the children that I'm going to have. No, I didn't go that far, but I I was saying you, you have to come with me because why I was excited. This was good news. And I wanted everybody to know that not just anybody said they would go out with me, but Amanda said she was going to go out with me. You know, we've got good news as believers, right, that we need to go out and and proclaim and shout and and yell from the mountaintops, just like I was excited to tell everyone who listened to me that Amanda said yes, she would go out with me. And as much as that good news was significant for me, the good news that we have as believers is far more significant for the loss that we're going to encounter in our lives. There's a, a hymn called Go Tell It on the Mountain. You guys have sung that one before, right? Over the hills and everywhere, right? Go tell it on the mountain. It was written back in the mid-1800s. It's one of the most familiar Christmas carols, hymns that we have now. It's been recorded by the greats of, uh, you know, Simon Garfunkel. You guys know who that is? Probably not. James Taylor, Dolly Parton, Garth Brooks, right? Has recorded Go Tell It on the Mountain. It's a, a common one. we one we hear almost every Christmas, I would venture to, to guess. And it comes from this concept in Isaiah 52.7 when it says this, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces or publishes or proclaims peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes, announces salvation. This is the song that the angels sang as they greeted the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. And as we're going to look at tonight, it's the song that we need to be proclaiming and singing as we wait now. Just like first century Israel was waiting for the first coming of Christ, we are waiting for the second coming of Christ. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? We need to be busy about the task of going and telling it, publishing it, announcing it, proclaiming it on the mountain. So I want us to zoom in on that subject, that chorus together tonight. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain, that Jesus Christ was born. The birth of Jesus. He's a baby, right? I mean, we we focused in on that at this musical that our church put on this weekend. This oddity of of God becoming flesh, becoming a a baby. But to a world, they're going to look at us and go, why are you so excited about the birth of a baby? A few reasons for us tonight. The first, you can write it down this way. Point number one, go tell on the mountain that Jesus Christ is the offspring or the seed of Eve. He's the seed of Eve. I don't have slides. If you're waiting for the slide to change, this is a big compass faux pas, but I do not have points tonight, okay? I do have points. I don't have slide points tonight, and that's on me. But the first point is, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is the offspring or the descendant, the seed of Eve. And you say, well, why in the world does that matter? Well, back in Genesis chapter three, verse six, Genesis chapter one and two records for us what? Rhymes with, I don't know. Creation and starts with a cr. <laughs> creation, right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, it rhymes it's with it's it's creation. Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. Then you get to Genesis 3 and at the, the last thing that God created was what? Man, right? And and woman, Adam and Eve. And he placed them in the garden of Eden. And he said to them, "You can eat from any tree in the garden except you should not eat from the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, right? Enter Satan in the form of the serpent. Comes up to Eve, starts talking to Eve, which she didn't freak out about. So it looks like animals and humans were able to communicate in some crazy vegetarian, vegan way back in the Garden of Eden. Anyways, Satan comes up and starts talking to Eve and she's like, he's challenging God's word right he says did God really say and he's he's causing her to doubt the goodness of God and we know what happens Eve gives into the temptation and she reaches out and she takes from the tree and she turns and she gives some to Adam who the text says gentlemen was with her and so the failure of Eve was also a failure of Adam to lead his wife spiritually so before we point the finger at the ladies in the room just like Adam did with Eve we need to understand that Adam was was falling right along with her right alongside her Eve ate of the fruit gave some to Adam Adam ate their eyes were open they realize they're naked and they all of a sudden are ashamed for the first time in the the history of their lives however long they had been living at that point because they had broken god's commandments, severing their perfect relationship with one another and also as we'll see their perfect relationship with god himself because not long after that what happens god comes walking through the garden god comes walking through the garden and comes up to adam and, and eve and he, he calls out to them where are you And it's not that God didn't know where they were, but he's drawing them into the confession and repentance of their sin. So he's saying, where are you? And they come out and they say, we were naked and so we hid. And God said, well, who told you you were naked? And they said, well, we ate from the tree that you told us not to. And then God begins to dole out the consequences for their sin. And there's consequences to Eve. There's consequences to Adam. There's consequences to the the ground that was going to cause a, a hard life for them and a hard life of labor for Adam that work was going to be difficult and uh, and wearisome. But then the, the greatest consequence that they faced was they were banished from the Garden of Eden. And that banishment from the Garden of Eden was a, a tangible picture of the separation from God that sin creates. Because it was in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve had had perfect union and fellowship with God for every day that they knew. And yet after they sinned, God said they can't stay here. And so he banishes them. He kicks them out of the Garden of Eden into a strange place, into a foreign place where they were going to have to work hard, where they were going to be exposed to the elements, where they were going to be away from the presence of God. And that's the thing that our sin does for every single one of us. It causes that separation from God. And so as we read Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 and then all the way through about verse 13 or 14, it should create in us a feeling of helplessness. If we're there with Adam and if we're there with Eve, it should create in us a feeling of just dread. You guys are young enough that I'm sure you remember your mom and dad or your grandparents giving you a, a punishment and i'm sure you remember sitting there and listening to them talk to you about how what you did was wrong and then begin to explain the consequences and there was this pit in in your your this feeling in the pit of your stomach of just oh no this is not going to go well and you were afraid of what was going to come next and what was going to come next and you every every punishment that they added on you felt the blow of so to speak well that's adam and eve as they're listening to god unroll the consequences of their sin realizing man we cannot undo what we did and then they're banished from the garden they're banished from the presence of god it's a feeling of helplessness if you were with us this morning at the 9 a.m service pastor mike told the story uh, and i never thought pastor mike would use a travis pastrana illustration from the pulpit but he pulled it out this morning about when when travis pastrana jumped out of a plane without a parachute on to to uh promo red bull or something and and he's he's skydiving without a parachute jumps out of the plane he's drinking a red bull on the way down but he has no parachute and pastor mike made the comparison to that's us apart from god because of sin and that's adam and eve in the garden feeling that helplessness going man if i don't have somebody to rescue me somebody to save me i'm going to die there's no ifs ands or buts about it this is grave this is as grave as it can possibly get Well, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, there's an amazing request from the prophet Habakkuk there. As the prophet Habakkuk is told about how God was going to use Babylon to bring punishment and judgment upon the nation of Israel, and he's being told about how all this is is going to happen to the Israelites because of their sin, and then he's even told how God is going to then punish the, the Babylonians for their own wickedness. Habakkuk says in an amazing statement, an amazing request, in Habakkuk 3, 2, he says this to God, in your wrath, remember mercy and your wrath remember mercy it's such a simple prayer and such an incredible picture of our heavenly father and what he does even here in genesis 3 because just 9 verses after the fall god turns to the consequences that we're going to fall upon satan and in genesis chapter 3 verse 15 we read this let me back up and get a running start verse 14 the lord said to the serpent to satan because you have done this Cursed are you above all livestock. And we can all say amen to that, right? We just, snakes are just bad news. And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So God's actually even judging the physical creature that Satan inhabited at this point, the, the, sa- the snake or the serpent. But then he says this to Satan in verse 15. I will put enmity, hostility, hatred between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Who's the woman in this context, by the way? Eve, right? He, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Guys, this is the first glimpse of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see in the entirety of Scripture. From Genesis 3.15 onward, there's this growing, uh, crescendoing cadence of the gospel that continues to build upon itself until you get to the cross. And so this is the the faint echoes of the drumbeats beginning to build throughout the Old Testament. But it's this promise that God makes in in judgment of Satan when he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, one of Eve's descendants, Satan, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, it's the first glimpse of good news. Why is it good news? Because of who this offspring would be. Luke answers that question for us. Grab your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three. We're gonna jump around to a, a few different passages tonight together, but Luke chapter three is where I wanna start. Look down in verse 23. You might see a, a header there, or maybe it's off to the side in your Bibles, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You're like, oh, great. This is a, an awesome Christmas message, Pastor PJ, a genealogy. No, it is, and here's why. Because this genealogy isn't just any genealogy. It's the genealogy of Christ, as I just said. But it's pretty spectacular. Let's, let's look at it for just a second. Verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. He was the adopted son of Joseph. But then look down in, in verse uh, 31. Verse 31. Verse 31, it says this, that he was a descendant of then the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, verse 31, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Methada, the son of Nathan, the son of, who's that next line? David. So he's a descendant of David, the royal line, the promised messianic line. So Luke is announcing to his audience here that Jesus is a descendant of David. Okay, that's significant. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, he goes on and on. And now jump down here to verse 33. The son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Wow, that's another massive name in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And we'll come back to that in a minute. The son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, he keeps going. Now jump all the way down to verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam the son of God. Luke takes Jesus and traces his genealogy all the way back to Adam, to the first man created. Why is that significant? Well, if Jesus is a descendant of Adam, then he is also the offspring of, rhymes with Steve, starts with an E, Eve. He's also the offspring of Eve. Eve. He's the seed, he's the descendant, he's the offspring of Eve. I said, we need to go tell it on the mountain that Jesus is the offspring of Eve. Why does that matter? Because of the judgment pronounced upon Satan, that the descendant of Eve was going to crush, is actually the better translation of the Hebrew word there, the head of Satan, while Satan bruises the heel of the seed of Eve. Again, what we have in Genesis 3.15 is the first glimpse of the gospel because it's the first glimpse of the cross In Genesis 3.15, God reveals in the hearing of Adam and Eve that Satan will not win, that he won't have the final say over mankind, but that this offspring of Eve would deal him a blow that he would not recover from. And yes, at the cross, Satan bruised the heel of Christ. But at the empty tomb, Christ crushed the head of Satan. It's over. It's over, and you say, well, don't we still live in a fallen and broken world? Yes, absolutely we do, but the end is secure. The end is in place. Satan's goal right now, at least the the actual goal, whether he realizes it now or not, is is simply to take as many down with him as he can, because he's not going to win. That battle has already been won. But Christ is the only one who could undo the fall of man. He's the only one who was qualified to be that one that could fulfill Genesis 3.15. It had to be the seed of woman. It had to be the seed of Eve. And it had to be Christ. It had to be Jesus. But not only should we tell it on the mountain that Christ is the offspring of Eve, the second thing that we need to proclaim on the mountain is that Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham, that he's the descendant of Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, the Lord calls Abram, right? Abram at the time eventually becomes Abraham. And the Lord says to to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, Abraham's life continues from this point on. He becomes Abraham. He saw God's word come true as Sarah uh, provided offspring for him in the the form of Isaac. And then you remember the story of of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham's willingness to, to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, and God stops him from doing that. And then through Isaac, the promise continues and Abraham sees descendants and Isaac sees descendants. And then ultimately from Isaac comes Jacob who would bear the 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And so you see this, these, these promises begin to fulfill themselves that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And though these, these Israelites would be a blessing to other nations and yes, those who cursed Israel would also themselves be cursed, there was a part of this promise that was left unfulfilled but not forgotten. And the promise that was left unfulfilled but not forgotten, at least up until the point of the birth of Christ, was this promise that through Abraham would all the families of the earth be blessed. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy. Oh, great, another genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you guys know the the audience that Matthew was writing to? Jews. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And so he opens up by saying the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's significant to a Jewish mind, isn't it? Right? Because immediately their, their Messiah radars would have started pinging. Okay, descendant of David, he's qualified for the Davidic throne, the messianic role. But then even more than that, he goes to the son of Abraham. Why would he include Abraham right there in the introduction? Because he's driving their minds back to Genesis chapter 12, specifically Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. See, what we find in the birth of Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, is that he is the one through whom all the families of the earth would be Blessed, And maybe you say, well, Pastor P.J., how do you you know that? Couldn't that just be coincidence that Matthew wanted to go there? Maybe. But let's make it more plain. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Let's pick up in verse 7. The Apostle Paul writing here says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture says, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch that? And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the what? Gospel. Beforehand the good news beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed This promise that made to Abraham is the gospel in its infancy It's the next cadence of that drumbeat of the the prediction of the coming of jesus sounding throughout the the old testament The expectation is building And jesus is the one The descendant of abraham who would fulfill this promise Well, how do we know even in galatians chapter 3 verses 7 and 8? that this is talking about Jesus. Jump down to verse 10 in Galatians 3. 10 through 14. It says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under, what, a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ is, Here it is. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of who? Abraham. Might come to the Gentiles. What blessing of Abraham? Genesis 12:3. And you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Do we have any naturally born Israelites in the house tonight? No. So all of you are thankful for Genesis 12:3. I'm thankful for Genesis 12:3, because that what that means is through a descendant of Abraham, God was going to throw open the door to salvation to, to Gentiles, to people who aren't Jews, people who do not belong to the house of Israel. And he was going to do that through Christ. Will all the nations of the earth be blessed? Again, this is another crescendo of the the drumbeat, of the prediction of the coming Messiah sounding even in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15 with the promise that Jesus would crush the head of Satan. Genesis 12.3 with the promise that through Christ will all the families of the earth be blessed. See, the fall of, of man, guys, our helpless estate that I talked about earlier it didn't catch God off guard. He wasn't sitting there going, oh man, what do we do now? Okay, let's let's get the Trinity together for a holy huddle. Let's find out what we're going to do. How are we going to respond to what they did? Did you see how bad they screwed up? Did you guys see that coming? No, that, that wasn't it. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, Peter says that Jesus was ultimately delivered over to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You know, it's popular today to say that there's an Old Testament God and there's a New Testament God. That's nothing but a lie. Because from the Old Testament, from nine verses after the fall, God has the gospel in view. God is, is promising the coming of Christ in Genesis 3.15. God is promising the coming of Christ in Genesis 12.3. He's He's paving the way. He's laying it out there. And really, that's why... the the apostle Paul, and that's why it says in the Old Testament that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What was he believing but the promise that God gave him and that Paul called the gospel back in Genesis chapter 12, that through one of the offspring of Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So we need to proclaim that Jesus is the descendant of Eve. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham. But finally this morning, tonight, point number three is this. And this is probably the biggest one. We need to, to go tell it on the mountain that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Even think about the name Jesus. I was talking about this with my son, Joshua. Joshua is the Old Testament form of Jesus, right? Yeshua. What does the name Yeshua mean in the Bible? God saves. Now think about the angel showing up to Mary and Joseph. Says to, to them, you shall call his name Jesus. Now was Jesus the only Jesus running around Nazareth and, and Bethlehem in the early days? No, there would have been plenty of other Jesuses. It was as common as the name Joshua is for us today. All right, Here's what makes the name Jesus significant to Jesus. The angel kept going and he said, for what? He will save his people from their sins call your son jesus for he your son will save his people from their sins call your son god saves because he your son will save his people from their sins do you see the significance there what's the angel doing by announcing that that his name should be jesus because he will save their people from their sins what's he telling us about jesus jesus is god Do you see that even in the giving of the name? It's not just that give him the name Jesus because it fits what he's going to do. It's give him the name Jesus because all these people are running around like Jesus out here saying, God save, this is God, and he will save, so this is the name that fits him. Call him Jesus. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. After the Garden of Eden, you know, from that time forward, God would take up temporary residence with his people. You had in the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle, the tent. And they would bring that from place to place. And the Ark of the Covenant was inside the tabernacle. And the cherubim were there. And God's presence would come down and and meet there with his people. But, But just temporarily. And then it would go back up. And no one was seeing God. And even when Moses said, God, let me see you. He was hidden in the cleft of a rock. And God passed by. And it says metaphorically that he allowed Moses to see his backside as he went through. The backside of his glory as it passed before him. And then you had the temple, the first temple, right? And there, there was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest was allowed to ever go before. And so they, they would go in representing the people once a year on the Day of Atonement. They would go into the Holy of Holies and then that temple was destroyed. But then later on, another temple was rebuilt in its place. And again, that one had the Holy of Holies, but it was this message, you're not allowed to be in the presence of God. Yes, God is here temporarily taking up residence with us to meet with the high priest once a year but that was only with, with one person once a year. And then he would uh, ascend, his, his glory would, would not be in there permanently as a sense of being in the presence of God the, the way that we understand it today as, as believers, as Christians. But then that temple was destroyed in 80, 70 and even that element of being in the presence of God was, was removed. But, but this is the only time from the time that Adam and Eve walked with God in the coolness of the garden. This is the only other time that Jesus, that God took up residence in any sort of a quasi-permanent way with his people. And it was in the form of a, a baby. A baby. The one whom John says in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And then it says in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's birth story right there. One, John chapter one, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know from Matthew's account, from Luke's account, what that looked like with the inn and and Mary and Joseph and the baby and the the animals and the wise men showing up later when he's a toddler. And then you've got the the shepherds and and everything. We know the, the whole story there. But when you guys have your children, you'll realize something very quickly. And that is this, babies are utterly helpless. They are they can do nothing for themselves except for sleep. And even that, sometimes they need your help to get them to calm down and go to sleep. But they're helpless. They, they can't feed themselves. They can't clean themselves. They can't change their diapers. They can't entertain themselves. And they can't get from point A to point B, at least not until they learn how to crawl. And yet this is how God came as a baby. This is what it means that the word became flesh and it has to beg the question with us, why? Why? Why would the eternal son of God, the one who was present and active in the creation of everything that has been made, the one who enjoyed the bliss of glorious union with the Father and the Spirit, why would he set all of that aside to become flesh and dwell, live, take up residence with his creation. Listen to Paul's words here from Galatians chapter 4 verses 3 through 5. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law So that we might receive adoption as sons. Why did God come as a baby? Because it was the only way for fallen man to be redeemed. That's why Paul says when the fullness of time had come, in God's perfect plan, in God's perfect timing, Just right according to his plan. God sent forth his son, Emmanuel, God with us, born of a woman, born, here it is, under the law to redeem those who were under the law. See, if if God had first come as this glorious conquering king in in the way that he will return, Romans 9, or not Romans, Revelation 19, uh, you may cover that question in small groups. If he first came like that on his majestic war horse... Or if he had first come like Daniel 7, on the clouds of glory, bearing the full force and weight of his glory, it would have spelled doom for humanity. Instead, he comes born as a woman, 100% man, in order that he might fully identify with those he came to redeem. To be born under the law, so that he might be fully qualified to live a life perfectly obedient to that law, to take our place, who have failed to meet the law's just requirements? Second Corinthians five twenty-one. Grab your Bibles, open over there. Second Corinthians five twenty-one. Even if you know it, you've memorized it. It's uh, whatever. It's an Iwana verse. Put your eyes on it for a second. For our sake. God. I'm going to change the pronouns here just to be clear. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, this is known in theological circles as the great what? The great exchange God, Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, takes our sin and we take his righteousness. Where does that righteousness that we get from Christ come from? Have you ever thought about that? It's not just the inherent righteousness that he has because he's God. We needed a different kind of righteousness than that. We needed a merited righteousness. We needed an earned righteousness. We needed a qualified righteousness. So it couldn't just simply be the righteousness that Jesus possessed as fully God. That wasn't enough because the, to, to make up for our sin, we needed to merit perfect righteousness so that we needed somebody to come on our behalf and do that for us. Do you guys understand what I mean by merit it? That it's, it's deserved, it's earned right? And we all know, hopefully, all of us do, because of Genesis chapter 3 that we covered earlier tonight, we're the helpless ones in the garden. We can't merit the righteousness of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. No one is justified by works of the law, Paul will say over and over and over again. We needed that, that righteousness to be earned on our behalf. And that's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus did that. God made him who knew no sin. That's the merited righteousness. He was sinless to be sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might gain his righteousness, the righteousness that he merited. And you say, well, why are we talking about this when we were talking about the birth of Jesus? Because this is why Jesus had to come as he did as a baby. Because he had to fulfill the law perfectly. Perfectly even down to the point where in Luke in Luke's gospel it records for us Luke chapter 2 verse 22 And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to the Lord or to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. So even his parents are are bringing him in to be uh, consecrated, to be circumcised in the temple uh, according to the law of the Lord so that even as an infant, he's nailing the perfect standards of the law of God. So Jesus, from the time that he was born, needed to fully merit and fully obey and fully earn every ounce of righteousness that you and I couldn't on our behalf. So that's why Emmanuel couldn't come as a full-grown man and just go straight to the cross. He had to live a life obedient to God. He had to merit a righteousness for you and I to be able to receive in exchange for our sin. This is why the writer of Hebrews says that he had to come as one of us in Hebrews chapter 2 so that he might identify with us. So that he could be the one who was tempted as we are and yet without sin. So that he could die on the cross in our place in exchange, give us his full righteousness. And So praise God that he is Emmanuel, God with us. But not just is it amazing that he was with us in human form, but it's amazing that he was with us absolutely 100% God still. Jesus, for He, God, will save him, save them from their sins. So there's there's evidence of His deity, or even when so many times there's the situation where somebody's thinking something, right? And Jesus answers their thoughts. Have you ever scratched your head at that? And in the uh, the the Gospels, when that happens, why? Because He's demonstrating His deity there. I mean, He walks on water. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He claims it. He says, You know, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. He's fully God. And you say, Well, why does that matter? Because in order to fully satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, he had to be fully God. To, in order to satisfy God's eternal wrath, he himself had to be an eternal sacrifice, an eternal being. And so we can say, Thank God that he was Emmanuel, God. With us. So yeah, go tell it on the mountain that he's a descendant of Eve, that he's a descendant of Abraham, that he's God with us. Because here we are, right, before, between his, his first coming and his second coming. And just like Israel, we are waiting. Waiting for his second appearance. And so we need to, to stay ready. And stay vigilant, ready for his return. And in the meantime, we need to proclaim, spread the good news that we've talked about tonight. Let me beg you not to go to your family dinners around Christmas and say, can I proclaim and tell it on the mountain that Jesus is the descendant of Eve and the descendant of Abraham? Because they're just gonna look at you like you're a freak, okay? Okay. That's not the point. Those have just been things to, to encourage you in your faith and to go, oh yeah, this, this is true. This, this is one story from Genesis all the way through, through Revelation. What I want you to understand is the urgency of the good news that we have to proclaim. I mean, think about Paul's urgency, right? As Paul was writing to his own countrymen, the fellow Jews who had missed the first coming of the Messiah. And Paul even says that I would give my own salvation if that were possible for the salvation of my countrymen. Paul's saying, I, I wish that you would see who came, that this is the Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for, the one that we've been longing for. He has come and you need to know about him. You need to repent from your sins and put your faith in what he's done. That needs to be our message as well. There needs to be an urgency about us that those in our own lives who have missed his first coming will come and un- and understand who he was, who that baby is, why it's so significant, why Christmas is so much more than whether or not we're keeping Christ in Christmas. That's, don't, that's not our battle. Our battle is to get lost to see that Jesus is the Savior. Our battle is not with Starbucks, Cody, to, to make sure that they're keeping Christ in the red cups. Our, our battle is with a lost and dying world that needs to see the first coming that needs to see the significance of this baby in a manger. It's not just warm and fuzzies. He's the the Messiah. He's the one that came to, to live that perfect life so that he could die on the cross for their sins, so that he could take your sin from you and pay your penalty, your punishment, and give you his perfect righteousness that he merited on your behalf so that you're forgiven and you're righteous in Christ. That's the message that we have to take out. That's the message that as we're waiting for him to come back, we need to go and tell that on the mountain. And here's the 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 reality for us that I want you to think about this Christmas season. For some of you, the mountain is not far away. The mountain is your dinner table because you've got unbelieving family members. Or the mountain is your next door neighbors or your roommates or your coworker. That's that's where your mountain is, where you need to be the messenger bringing good news. And so let me beg you, let me plead with you, let me urge you. Take advantage of this season where people are thinking about Christ because it's, it really is everywhere. I mean, even most of the people that you come into contact with are going to have some understanding of this, the Christmas story. Utilize this time, redeem this time to make sure that you are shouting it louder than I was when Amanda said she would go out with me. Make sure that you are excited about Christ and the benefit that what he has done will provide to everyone else. Let's pray together. God, I pray for opportunities this Christmas season for each and every one of us to proclaim this, to go and tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born and why that matters. God, I pray that... that those of us in this room would all be able to answer for ourselves why that matters, why that is significant, why this is so much more than just a story or just a, a, a Christmas play or just a, a, a Hallmark card. Lord, this is the, the greatest event that has ever taken place in the history of mankind is God entering into this world, God becoming flesh. God, we are so thankful that you did as well. Because we so desperately needed it. We had no hope, no help, no shot at righteousness if you never came as Christ, as the baby. And so, Lord, we are so grateful that you did. God, I pray that we would have plenty of of occasions and opportunities this Christmas to share that with unbelievers. And I pray that we would start with the unbelievers that are in our immediate circles that we would continually go to them. And if we haven't gone to them yet, we need to go to them and say, hey, I've got something that I need to share with you because it is the most important thing that I could ever tell you. God, give these students the boldness to do that. Give them the the, the courage, God, to do that and, and the hope that in doing that, they will see somebody that they love and they care about, put their faith in Christ and be saved. God, we thank you that By your grace, we haven't missed the first coming. And so we right now, Lord, wait for the second coming and pray that we'd be found faithful when you do return. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.